Thank you for joining us at Key Life Fellowship for our pulpit ministry podcast. Each sermon on this podcast is from our 11 a.m. Sunday service. We are glad that you have joined us digitally, but would love to see you in person on Sunday mornings at either 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. Now, let's open God's Word and ask Him to reveal His truths for our lives. In John's Gospel in the 13th chapter, we are going to continue on our journey through this Gospel, and we are coming directly off of a lesson last week when we were together where Jesus washed His disciples' feet. What a statement that was. What a picture that was. Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, taking on the role and the position of a humble servant, washing the disciples' feet. We learned last week that it said he was beginning to show them the full extent of his love in this display. We know that this display would begin here in those quiet moments after the Passover meal. But this picture of his love would find us and will find us in the days to come traveling to a cross where he will suffer and he will die a brutal, vicious death under the wrath of God in the place of all who will believe in him as Lord and Savior. And in today's message, we are going to come to a topic that is difficult sometimes. In fact, there is no entertainment value to this message at all. I'll go ahead and give you that preface. If, if you're looking to be entertained, you came to the wrong place. But what we are going to see is we're going to see that in this message, in John chapter 13, verses 18 through 20, Jesus is going to proclaim that there is a traitor in their midst. Now, can you imagine after the moment where Jesus washed his disciples' feet, showing this kind of love and selfless sacrifice? Immediately, he is going to then move in. He's going to transition into telling his true disciples that there is one among their number who is no true disciple at all. I would that you pay close attention to this this morning because we err in thinking that Jesus would have a traitor in his midst in a crowd of 12. We err in thinking that we wouldn't have a traitor in our midst, but I pray today that if you are that unbeliever here today who has not surrendered to Christ, that by his grace today he would allow you to repent and to believe. But we see Judas here, and we know that Jesus is not going to name him as Judas just yet. That's going to be in the lessons that follow. But he is going to make his disciples aware that there is someone among them, that close-knit group. Now you think about that. For three-plus years, these men have walked all over the countryside and throughout cities and villages and towns and homes preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ as Jesus performed many miracles and did many things. And Jesus is going to give them the news right here in John chapter 13 in the next few verses. He's going to give them the news that one of you is not really one of mine. One of you has been a traitor this whole time. And I want us to look in detail at this event. Why? Because Scripture outlines it. John does a wonderful job of outlining it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 
So there must be something to it, though many times we get to Judas and we read over it as fast as we can because we really don't want to have a whole lot of thought toward this traitor. We're going to see that John's going to go into a time here where he is going to, in detail, talk about Judas. I want us to look at that today in John chapter 13, verses 18 through 20. Let's read it together, and then we'll break the elements of this down and leave with what God would have us to see in this text. Verse 18 says this, I am not referring to all of you. Remember, Jesus just told them, if you take on the form of a humble servant as I did, you'll be blessed for that. And then he says, I'm not talking to all of you. Remember last week I told you Jesus was giving a display of his love for his own? And what he's doing today, he's making sure that they understand, one of you is not my own. I am not referring to all of you. He says next, I know those I have chosen. But this is to fulfill the Scripture. He who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Verse 19 says, I am telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. You ought to know that phrase by now, that Greek phrase, ego, I, me. He's saying, I'm telling you what's going to happen so that when it does happen, you will know that I am Yahweh, that there will be no doubt in your mind of my divinity, my deity, that I am God in flesh. I'm going to let you know before it ever happens. I tell you the truth. Whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. Now, we're not going to look at verse 21 today. Verse 21 will be next week's first verse, but I want to end with our reading here just to kind of put a bookend on each side of what we've seen in these verses. It says this, after he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. We'll talk about that in detail next week. But as I said, I want us to look at that and put it in its proper context. Jesus lets his disciples know I'm not referring to all of you. There's a traitor. And there's a traitor among our number. And then in 21, in case they didn't get it, he said, one of you. Oh, can you imagine being one of the 12 there? One of you is going to betray me. We know this, that there were two people in the room who had insight into this. One was Christ. The other was Judas Iscariot. We know who he is because we know the rest of the story. But here in this moment, as John is looking back on this account, at that time, they didn't know who he was. Can you imagine the fear, the thoughts? We're going to see next week that they are actually going to turn to that. Is it me? Well, they're going to nudge each other. Ask him if it's me. Ask him who it is. Because wouldn't they, by nature, wonder wouldn't we? But I want us to look here at the details of this and to glean what we see here before we get into the actual lesson of Judas next week. This was startling news. If you're taking notes, write that. And that's the first thing I want you to see, the startling news. Now, let me assure you of this. It was not startling to Jesus. We're going to see that in a moment. Jesus was not startled. It was startling news to his disciples. He said, I am not referring to all of you. Verse 18, that first part. I'm not referring to all of you. Now, wait a second. 
for three plus years. These men have eaten together. They have traveled together. They have ministered together. They have lived life together. Did you know this? Even Judas left his family and left his home to follow Jesus. These men have been doing life together for three plus years. And Jesus all of a sudden tells them, one of you doesn't belong. One of you doesn't belong in this group. He says, I am not referring to all of you. Jesus is making very, very clear. There is one among their ranks who is about to commit the highest of treason. Oh, we know Judas as the worst betrayer in history, the worst traitor that has ever walked the face of the earth. Jesus is letting him know, one of you is going to be that traitor. And it's one of you from our group. How startling that had to be. That would be just as startling as if I found out today that one of the elders of Key Life Fellowship decided that they no longer believed in Christ, which would reveal, as we're going to see, they never really believed in Christ. But that they were going to just walk away from the faith, and they were going to just turn their back on Christ. Well, that would be startling to me. In fact, I wouldn't believe it even if you told me. But yet these men are faced with this same dilemma. Startling news that this thought, close-knit family, which obviously from time to time has had its problems, don't all families, but that one of these in the midst of this family was a traitor. Now, can you imagine coming directly off of Jesus washing their feet in such a display of love? And someone still so steeped in their unbelief and their sin that they are going to sell Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. It's astonishing to the true believer, isn't it? In fact, it's startling. And we see this startling news being delivered by Jesus. This news consisted of some things. One thing is this, someone didn't belong. What do you mean someone didn't belong? We've been working like a team all of this time. Someone was a spy for the enemy, a traitor. That someone had been there the whole time, hidden in their midst, secretly disguising himself as a sheep when he was really a ravenous wolf. Oh, we would be foolish to think that there would not be some here disguised as sheep. But inwardly, you are a wolf. You're no believer at all. There is no fruit in your life, just as there was no fruit in Judas' life. Or let me say this, there was no good fruit in Judas' life. In fact, Jesus in Matthew chapter 17, he speaks of this. And and you know that when he spoke this, he had to have on his mind. I I know that I'm reaching out there and, and, and trying to get into the mind of Christ for just a moment. But I know and I feel that he had to have at least when he was saying these things in Matthew chapter 7, thought of Judas because he knew the whole time. Matthew chapter 7, the Lord himself said, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, 
but a bad tree bears bad fruit. Now, we can just, in our short time that we've been in the Gospel of John, we can look back on Judas not too terribly long ago, and we can see this. We can see some bad fruit being displayed in his life. Remember when Jesus feet were being anointed with oil by the hair of Mary as she poured out the expensive nard or perfume on Christ. It was Judas who ridiculed her. It was Judas who said, what is this woman doing wasting all of this money? What is wrong with her? And we know this, that that text tells us Judas kept the money, and the only reason that he kept the money was so that he could steal from it. Judas wasn't thinking about the nard and the value of the nard. He was thinking about what he was missing out on that he could steal. And so we see all this whole time, if we go back, and we do have the, the advantage now of going back and, and seeing this play out in hindsight, we can look back and we can say, you know what? He was a traitor the whole time. He was a wolf in sheep's clothing the whole time. And so here we have Jesus breaking the news to his disciples. Someone didn't belong who had been there the whole time. He's going to let them know this as well. Someone not only didn't belong, someone was destined to betray. Someone was destined to betray. Did you know this? Had no one betrayed Jesus, he could not have been turned over to the authorities, and he would not have been sentenced to death, and he would not have died on a cross, and you would still be lost and in your sin. Judas was destined to betray Christ. This had to happen. Someone had to sell him out. It's plain and simple. Don't miss that when you look at Scripture. God has designed things for, for a specific purpose and reason, according to His good pleasure and perfect will. doesn't mean you have to like it. doesn't mean it has to be the way that you would have done it. When you have the opportunity to be God, I assure you this, you can do it any way that you want to do, but you'll never have that opportunity. But we see that Jesus is letting them know someone was destined to betray Him. But isn't that what we do naturally as sinners anyways? Betray Christ? Oh, in all reality, in our human nature, Judas is no different than any of us. Because in our human nature, we are unbelieving sinners. And an unbelieving sinner is always selling Jesus out for something else. The lust of the flesh, the things of this world, greed, money, whatever may come along. Judas here being revealed by Christ as one who was destined to betray, simply doing what sinners do. They betray God. Oh, did you know that each of us who were in Christ at one time when we were not in Christ betrayed God with our every act and our every deed and our every motive and our every thought? We betrayed Him and we stole His glory that belonged rightfully to Him. We took it for ourselves. So Judas was doing what sinners and unbelievers do. And his disciples here were, of course, startled. Startled. Jesus was saying, there is a Benedict Arnold among us. Startling, isn't it? We have to realize something. We have to realize something even in our day, in our time, even in the church in 2022, that not everyone who is in our number is of our number. Not everyone who is here in attendance today is really in Christ. I would be a fool to think that. Why would I be a fool? Because even one of Jesus' 12 was defective. He was a traitor. So there are many of you who, just like Judas, you pretend day after day after day after day. But you know in the depths of your heart it's only pretend. 
You know the depths of your heart, that you truly are an unbeliever, that you truly have not surrendered to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and your life is producing fruit that is consistent with your sinful nature, not consistent with a nature that has been redeemed in Christ. First John, John covers this for us because there are many people who get confused about this. Many people who would think that Judas was a believer and then he somehow defected. He deconstructed his faith to a point of total unbelief. It's not the case at all. In fact, in 1 John, John, the writer of the gospel here, gives us clarity on that in chapter 2. He says this, they went out from us in verse 18, but they did not really belong to us. Now, please pay attention. It is John who was in there the day that Jesus gave news that there was going to be a traitor. It was John who was giving this account here in the gospel that we're looking at. It is the same John in his first epistle in chapter 2 who realizes the truth behind this. They went out from us because they were never of us. For all the people who think that somebody's a believer and then they defect and they go back out into the world and they were saved and they're now lost, that is incorrect theology. They went out from us because they were not of us. Judas, no exception. John says they went out from us because they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, watch what he says, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. None of them belonged. He was speaking not only of the false teachers of his day, but he was also, I guarantee you, looking back to Judas the apostate who was in the group. He was remembering this account, this conversation with Christ. They went out from us because they were not of us. Judas was destined to betray Christ, and it was simple. All God had to do was to leave Judas in his unredeemed, unbelieving, sinful state, and by nature, he would betray the Christ. Oh, if I would have been there in the group... As an unbeliever, all he would have had to do was leave me to my unbelief. And you know what I would have chosen? I would have chosen 30 pieces of silver over the king of kings, just as Judas did. Oh, but I'm thankful that he did not leave me in my unbelief as a traitor or an unbeliever. So we see Jesus giving startling news here in the first part of 18. But I want us to look next at the sovereign Lord. I don't want you to miss the Lord's sovereignty in all of this. Because though the disciples were startled, taken aback, dismayed, bothered, whatever adjective that we can think of to describe this moment, that's what they were. Jesus was even killed. Sovereign. Just as when they were laying in the boat, scared for their lives, and Jesus walked on the sea. He kept it all together. Why? He was in control of everything. We see the sovereign Lord here in verse 18, the next part. It says, I am not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen. I know those I have chosen. Did you know this? Just as Jesus walked up to Peter on the shore of Galilee and said, leave your nets and follow me, he had an encounter with Judas, very similar. And he would have called Judas to leave everything and follow him. And you know what? Judas pretended that he did, but he really didn't. Judas pretended that he did, but he really didn't. He was a traitor from the beginning. And Jesus is letting them know this. This is not taking me by surprise. I know who I have chosen, both the regenerate and the reprobates. I know those who I have chosen, both the regenerate and the reprobates. 
He knows those that he has chosen for both purposes. I want you to understand that. It's time that that Christians embrace that doctrine, that he is in sovereign control of everything. He chose every single one of his disciples, knowing every single thing about them. It was his choice. He's making that clear. He's making that clear because he wants them to know, I am not shocked by this. Because he knew they were. They were startled. They were shocked. Romans chapter 9 gives us clarity on such things. The fact that Jesus is sovereign over the regenerated and over the reprobates. He's sovereign over all things. Romans chapter 9 verse 11 says, Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad. This is the twins referring to Jacob and Esau. Before they had done anything good or bad, before they were born, in fact, you want to get technical, before the foundations of the earth, he said before they could do anything good or bad in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told. The mother was told this. Watch what she was told. The older will serve the younger. That's not the way that it's supposed to go, but that's the way that God chose for it to go. Just as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. I know this is a familiar passage for many of you, but don't miss how this ties in. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Is God unjust for leaving Judas in his reprobation and unbelief, knowing that he's going to betray Christ? Is he unjust for that? Is God unjust for choosing Jacob over Esau? Is God unjust for choosing the elect over the reprobates? No, not at all. Watch what he says. Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. Oh, man, let that settle on your heart for a moment. If you've received mercy, it's because God has chosen to give you mercy. Bow down and worship him and thank him because he did not have to give you mercy. He says, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose. Now let me take you back to Pharaoh for a moment. He raised Pharaoh up so that he could destroy him. You say, well, who does God think he is? Watch this, God. God, and we're going to see your lesson in this in just a second. He said, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. Did you catch that? Not upon you or upon me, but upon him. And he hardens whom he wants to, say it with me, class, harden. He hardens who he wants to harden. Did you know this? Judas had been hardened. We look at this and we go, how, how could he not believe? How could he not see the love of Christ? He's there. He's, he's washing his feet. Look what he's doing. He's showing his love. He's pouring it out. How could Judas not believe? God hardened Judas. And he doesn't have to apologize for that. And God still hardens the reprobates. Read Romans chapter 1. He still hardens them, and he doesn't have to apologize for that. He is God. What we ought to do, we ought to not say, how could you hate Esau? We ought to say, how could you love Jacob and put yourself in that position because Jacob was a scoundrel? How could he love Kirk Hall and then fall on my face and say, I don't know. It must be grace. I didn't come here to preach that today, but that was just extra since it's in here. You see the sovereign Lord here, unsurprised by the treason. Why? Because God had hardened him. He was unsurprised by the treason because he knew that it was going to take place. You know that he knew because you were here when we were studying John chapter 6. 
John chapter 6, verse 70, look what it says. Then Jesus replied, way back in chapter 6, then Jesus replied, have I not chosen you, the 12? Yet one of you is a, a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the 12, was later to betray him. He said, do I not know everything, even though I picked you, just like I picked Peter, I picked you, so that I could harden you, so that you would betray me, because someone had to do it. You say, that sounds like God is this big God in control of everything. Yes, and it is high time. It is high time that we feeble, feeble pieces of clay realize that he is the potter and we are just simply clay. He's molding his plan together. He was unsurprised by this treason. Unlike us, right? In our time when some popular Christian musician defects from the faith, and it's revealed, it comes out in the newspaper, we all gasp, don't we? And I assure you of this, it doesn't surprise the Lord. He knows who he has chosen. It doesn't surprise him. Nothing surprises him. He knows exactly who they are, just as he knows exactly who you are. So we see he was unsurprised by the treason. Did you know God is no less sovereign over reprobation? than he is over salvation. God doesn't ever lay his attributes down. So we see here, because of that, the Lord knowing all, being sovereignly in control of all, I know those I have chosen. He's letting his disciples know. Don't freak out. Well, look at the compassion of the Lord there for his own. Don't freak out. I got this under control. I know who I have chosen. He was unsurprised by the treason, but he was also unfazed by the traitor. He was unfazed by the traitor. Jesus didn't just fall apart right here. Oh, my best friend has forsaken me. Because he knew the whole time. He knew the whole time that he was a traitor and that he was going to do what traitors do, and that is commit treason doesn't change Jesus' mindset or his mission. Aren't you thankful that Jesus didn't get freaked out by Judas? What if Jesus would have got freaked out? One of my closest friends has just totally bailed on me. I'm just, I'm not going through with this thing. I'm not going to lose any more friends. I didn't change his mindset. Didn't change his message. He came to seek some for salvation. And who are those? Those who believe. And to leave some in their damnation. Who are they? Those who don't believe. Those who don't believe very simple. Guess what? I, as a feeble man, have no right to question that. Just as it said in Romans chapter 9, and we saw that. Verse 19, chapter 9. One of you will say to me, then, why does God still blame us? For who resists his will? But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? Doesn't he have the right to do what he desires to do as God? Last time I checked, God never checks with me before he does a single thing. Nor has he ever had to check with any human being. I think he gave this lesson to Job many, many years ago. If you want to go see it, go back and read the account of Job and God is going to in the 40th chapter or so, 
give him a dealing on his sovereignty and his control over all things. He was unfazed by this traitor. We can't be phased either by the traitors. Some people get discouraged when people walk away from the faith. Oh, what are we going to do? We're going to keep sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're going to keep loving people. We're going to keep proclaiming the truth of the word of God. We're not going to apologize, and God's going to do what he does. And we're going to rejoice in that. He was unfazed, saying true to his mindset and his mission. We must do the same, because we live in a time, in case you don't know, where many people are deconstructing or defecting from the faith. These young people who were raised in a Christian home, and oh, I was always forced to live my parents' faith, and I've never really got to explore on my own. Now, you were fortunate enough that your parents taught you about true faith. And what you're doing, you are betraying the gospel of Jesus Christ as you are betraying the truth that your parents have raised you in. That's what you're doing. You can call it whatever you want. You can call it deconstructing. You can call it defecting from the faith. You can title it whatever you're doing. You are living like an unappreciative brat. You were born into a Christian home, and you were born into a Christian home by a sovereign God so that you could hear the truth and so that you could believe, and you were acting like Judas. And that was just for free. Move to the next thing, the scriptural mandate. Look at verse 18. Why, why did this have to happen, right? Isn't that the question that we always ask? Why did this have to happen this way? Couldn't, couldn't there have been another route? Couldn't it have been that they were just walking down the street and a Roman soldier just happened to be leaning up against the wall and heard them whispering about where they were going, and then he went and reported to his superiors, and then they went and arrested Jesus? How do, why did it have to happen this way? Jesus is going to tell us why. Because this is the way that God wanted it to happen. The scriptural mandate, 18, the third part. He says, I am not, I am not referring to all of you. I know these I have chose, those I have chosen, but this is to fulfill the scripture. He who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Jesus said it has to happen this way because scripture has already recorded it this way. Oh, don't you love when God puts something in scripture and then you see it happen in the future exactly the way that it happened in the scriptures. We look at the Old Testament, we read how the Christ was going to come. We look in the New Testament, we see the account of how Christ came. These people who were separated by hundreds and hundreds of years never met each other, but yet they're all on the same page as to the story that God is writing. Isn't that interesting? And Jesus says here, there's a scriptural mandate. I want you to pay attention to that. This was to fulfill the passage of scripture. In that passage of scripture, he who shared my bread has turned against me. This is taken from Psalm 41, verse 9 as this is predicted by the Scriptures. Psalm 41, verse 9, it says, Even my close friend, whom I trusted, he who shared my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Now, in this account, this is a common prophetic method of communication that we find all throughout Scripture. Many prophecies that we see in Scripture have the near and the immediate fulfillment, and then they have the far and future fulfillment that they point to. And when we see this in Psalm 41, 9, what this is, this is an account of David and Ahithophel. And when we see David and Ahithophel, they are companions, they are friends, but Ahithophel actually sells David out. He betrays David in 2 Samuel chapter 16, verse 17. And you know what? Ahithophel betrays David, and he shared bread with him, and then he goes out. He commits suicide. Judas, in the New Testament, was the fulfillment of what David and Ahithophel pointed to. Isn't that amazing that God would, in his intricate plan, create all the details 
And so what happens here is in the life of David, David got to live out what Christ was going to fill in prophecy toward what was going to happen when Judas betrayed the Christ. How do we know that's so? Because Jesus said it. This is to fulfill the passage. This is to fulfill it. Now, we've seen so much of that. We've seen David. We've seen Ahithophel. And now, here's the fulfillment of that. The fulfillment of that is Judas Iscariot, a traitor in our midst, just as David had a traitor in his midst, who is going to betray Christ. And he does. He betrays Christ, as we know, because we see the end of the story for 30 pieces of silver. This was predicted by the Scripture. God allowed it to be placed in the Old Testament so that when it was fulfilled in the New Testament, Christ could say, see there, it was written about here, Psalm 41, verse 9. It was a scriptural mandate predicted by the Scriptures but proclaimed by the Savior. Jesus is telling them, not only was this an actual event in the Old Testament, because it was, it pointed to something greater. It pointed to something greater. It pointed to the fact that Jesus would have a traitor in his group and that that traitor would sell Jesus out. That's exactly what is happening here. So we see the scriptural mandate, which then moves us to the next verse, the sign of assurance. The sign of assurance. He wants to give his disciples, the true disciples, assurance because you know what's going to happen? They're going to have a hard time with this. They have a hard time with this. You remember when you were a young man growing up and you had close friends, and you were a tight-knit group, probably had some cool creative name for yourself. You would run around tormenting the town. Could you imagine if one of those close friends betrayed one of you guys? Well, it would be bad news for him, wouldn't it? Well, you'd be startled. You'd be amazed. You'd be, how could he do that, man? He, he was supposed to be our friend. Now, I want you to think for a second that Jesus, fully God and fully man, He's going through all of this as well. And he knows that his disciples are. And he knows that they need some assurance here. So he says this to them, I'm telling you now before it happens. I'm giving you warning. Man, aren't you thankful when you read something in his word and you don't really know why you read it and two weeks later you're living it? Anybody ever been there? You read it and you say, man, that's nice. That must be for someone else. And you realize you read that two weeks later was for you. It was God preparing you through his word for what was to come, giving you assurance that he's faithful and he's going to bring you through that. So Jesus is telling them, I tell you before it happens, it's a sign of Christ's omniscience. He's letting them know, I know everything. Rest in that. Listen, church, pay attention. Rest in the omniscience of Christ. There's nothing that takes him off guard, even traitors among the 12. That doesn't take him off guard. And what he wants to do is he wants to offer you the comfort of knowing that he is in control of everything and that he knows everything. He is omniscient. That means he's all-knowing. John chapter 13 told us this, verse 11. We just read it. It said, for he, who, for, for he knew excuse me, who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone is clean. Remember, he's washing Peter's feet. Peter said, oh, no, don't clean my feet, clean my whole body. He said, there's no reason. You've already had a bath. He who's had a bath doesn't need to be clean. But then he says, there's some of you who aren't clean, specifically talking about the one, the one that he is announcing here in the text that we're looking at today. And he already knew it. Now, the question is, when did Jesus find out about it? He didn't have to. Oh, I wish that we would have a high enough view of God to earnestly and honestly believe that. 
He's all-knowing. That means he, he never started knowing. He's always known that nothing goes on without his knowledge. In fact, he knew it before humanity was ever created, before the earth was ever created. Oh, can you imagine being Christ coming to this earth before knowing before the earth was ever created that when you came, you were going to be betrayed by one of your closest friends? But you had to do what you had to do for the glory of the Father and the redemptive plan for mankind as prescribed by the Father. But Jesus is going to take the time here and not worry about himself again. He's going to give assurance to his true disciple that I know everything. I'm in control of everything. By proclaiming this before it happened, he's saying, I'm an all-knowing Savior. It's not shocking me. I saw it, and I've already made provision. Aren't you thankful for that attribute of God in your life? That he is omniscient, making provision before you ever see it. And he made that provision in eternity past. Did you know God is not reactive or proactive? God is in complete sovereign control. It's a sign of Christ's omniscience. It's a sign of, for Christ's own. He's giving this for his true disciples. How do I know? He says, when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. There's that term again, ego I me. We know that is the Greek term, I am we know that that comes from the Old Testament in the account of Moses by the burning bush when he says, well, who do I tell them sent me? Well, when they ask you, do you tell them I am that I am sent you? Yahweh. Jesus is telling them this. I'm telling you beforehand so that when it happens, you'll know that I am Yahweh. There'll be no doubt in your mind as to my deity, my divinity, who I am, that I am God in flesh, just as I have been proclaiming this whole time. He's giving them assurance of who he is. I am. Oh, isn't it good to know that when we follow Christ, we are following the great I am. We are not following some substitute God. We are following the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He was showing this to his disciples so that they would never doubt. Never doubt. Never who he really is. Judas was going to betray him. We know this. But unfortunately, it was going to cause the true disciples to fall into human doubt. Jesus wants to take that away, right? He wants us to never doubt who he is. But does it happen? You bet it does. You bet it does in your humanity. It happens, whether you want to admit it or whether you don't. In your humanity, doubt happens. But isn't it amazing that we have the Word of God and we have the promises of God and we know that He's in control of all things and that He is omniscient. Nothing takes Him by surprise. And so He has every situation that we face. A true believer realizes that. And if they don't, they will quickly realize that because the Holy Spirit who lives in them will make sure that they realize that. Jesus is doing this for His disciples here, knowing that one would defect and knowing that they may fall into some type of doubt. He's taking that doubt away. We know this, a true believer may doubt, but a true believer will never defect. Did you hear that? A true believer may doubt, but they will never defect. Why? Because you don't have faith. Faith has you. Faith is what keeps you. It is a gift from God. 
And we know that it is that gift that he has given you that keeps you. Even when your human mind wants to doubt, your internal redeemed soul cannot doubt because you know the work that God has done in you. In fact, Hebrews chapter 10 says this about the true believers. And if you've never studied Hebrews, you can find out this really quickly. When you do study Hebrews, the whole book is about apostasy. Those people who claim to have faith but really didn't have faith at all, and then they turn from the faith and were turning back to Judaism. And he's writing to the true believer here in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 39, and the writer of Hebrews says this, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. The true believer will not shrink back. They won't defect. They will believe, and they are then, as we know, proven to be the ones who are truly saved, those who persevere to the end. Aren't you thankful for the doctrine of perseverance and that we're not in control of it? He is. His true children will persevere to the end. They will not shrink back. Jesus is giving a sign here, the sign of assurance. I'm telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you'll know that I am he. He's giving them this sign so that when it does happen, the true believer doesn't have to stay in their doubt. As you know, Peter's going to face doubt in just a few hours. But he didn't stay there. And he didn't defect. Peter came back to Christ and he was restored. Where Judas, in comparison, went out hanged himself. He wasn't even that good at that because the rope broke according to Acts and he fell and his innards were busted upon the ground at the hillside below. True believer may doubt, but he'll never defect. Aren't you thankful for the assurance that the Lord gives us in that? That it is his gift of faith, his work that he has sovereignly done that keeps us. It is justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and what he did at the cross, and that has the true believer. He's giving assurance to his disciples, letting them know, telling you before it happens so that when it does happen, you'll see. And I knew all along, and I am truly God. What a comforting thing for us to know that, that the Christ that we serve and the Christ that we follow is truly God who came in flesh to redeem us. He moves on then into the next verse. In a seemingly out of place verse of Scripture. I want to read it for you again, and then we'll talk about it. He says in verse 20, I tell you the truth, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. What? You just told us someone's going to betray you. And there's someone in the midst of us. And then what is this thing here in verse 20? What is that even talking about? I'll tell you right now, it poses some interpretive challenges, doesn't it? Because if you first read this, how many of you would agree? It seems kind of out of place. Well, let's put it in its context. Let's put it in the context between the two verses about betrayal, 21 and 18. We know what happens. We know what happens when someone walks out and betrays Christ, leaves the church, claims to no longer believe, and goes back into the world. It strikes the true believers with fear. Just as these true believers here in, in the group would have been stricken with fear. And here's the fear that they would have had, that the message would be invalidated. Can you imagine what they were thinking in this moment? What do you mean? Can you imagine the one he was partnered up with when they went out into the countryside, house to house, sharing the gospel? Did all those people who believe, are they not believers now? 
everybody is going to invalidate our whole message. You know this had to be on their mind, or Jesus wouldn't have put this verse just right here in the middle of nowhere. Well, it's interesting how he does know everything. He knew what they were thinking, and so he addressed it. He was letting them know before they fell into this frenzy of just freaking out and worrying about how Judas or the traitor at this point, they didn't even know which one it was, was going to invalidate their message. Jesus does something amazing here. He confirms to them that a bad messenger doesn't invalidate a good message. Some of you are old enough to remember the old publisher clearinghouse commercials with Ed McMahon. And he would come to the door and he would give people millions of dollars and there would be that lady who would just go berserk and screaming and hollering. She didn't look over at the mail truck that delivered that with Ed McMahon and say, oh, I'm not accepting this because the mail truck is dirty or the mailman's shirt is a little disheveled and, and wrinkled. I, I'm not going to accept that. The messenger really played no role. I want us to understand that today because Jesus is making this very clear in 20, that a messenger is just a vessel, that a messenger is not going to validate or invalidate a message. He's going to deliver a message. A bad mailman does not change a good letter. You get a good letter in the mail, you don't care what the mailman looked like. You don't even remember once you open the letter. You've received an inheritance from this distant uncle who gave you $50 billion, right? Let me just tell you, it's probably a scam. Check it out real good especially if you can't read it very well. But a bad mailman doesn't change a good message. What is Christ teaching them here? Oh, don't we know how many people have lost confidence in the message of the gospel because of messengers who are corrupt? That's why I tell you, and I will tell you again, don't put your eye on this messenger. I am nothing but a messenger. There's no value in me at all. The only value that I have, I am a jar of clay. The only value that I have is the message of the gospel. Look what Jesus says to them there. Because he knew they were going to be thinking that because of Judas, the whole message of the gospel is going to be invalidated. Here we thought we had the good news, and he's messed the whole thing up. Jesus said this, the good news is still good. He said, I tell you the truth, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. He said, it's not about the messenger. It's about me. It's about me, and it's about my message. And it's about the Father who has ordained this message. Look what he's saying here. He's saying, let your confidence not be in the messenger. Let it be in the message. Let it be in the message. He's wanting them to have confidence in Christ, not in those who deliver the message. Why? Because we're flawed. We could fail you. Did you know that? I myself could fail you. And I'll say this to you. Don't have confidence in me. I have no power. I have no authority other than the Word of God, other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is all about Him. Please understand that. Jesus knew that they were going to be worked up about the potential of this message being somehow diminished by this defector. And he lets them know, it's not going to be like that. I've had people ask me, well, I'm saved, I think, but the preacher who I was saved under ended up totally apostatizing and became an atheist, and he no longer even believes in God. And they'll ask me this question, am I still saved? And I will look at them, and I will say, do you trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Because that is the message of the gospel. It has nothing to do with the messenger who has delivered it. 
Many people will, will see as we live this life, I assure you, there will be so-called messengers who are nothing but wolves in sheep's clothing who will apostatize from the faith. There's no reason to get discouraged. God's not shocked by it. And the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ still exists, and it's still powerful. That's why I tell you, there's nothing I'm going to say to you that's powerful other than the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it contains its own power. Isn't that what Romans chapter 1, verse 16 says? It's the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. It's not the power of Kirk. It's just the message that I get the, the honor and the privilege of preaching. But don't put your faith in a messenger. That's what Jesus is telling you. Put your faith in a message. Because the message is where the true power is. Paul understood this in his day. In fact, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 15, it says, it is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. Paul knew that people preach Christ for the wrong reason. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the. Def- uh, the latter do so in love, and knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? He said there are people who are preaching the gospel, and they're in opposition to me. But what does it matter? Watch what Paul. What conclusion Paul comes to? He says, the important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. The apostle Paul understood that the power is in the gospel and in the message that the gospel contains, not in the messengers. He said, these people are preaching for the wrong reasons, but Christ is still being preached. And I will rejoice because Christ is being preached. We can't put our confidence in the messenger, but in the message. Confidence in the person of the gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the contents of the message of the gospel that matter. Not necessarily the character of the messenger. Should we as messengers worry about our character? Yes, we should so that we can take away any of this that we're talking about, where the person says, well, the message is invalidated because of the messenger. No, I don't want to even seem to invalidate the message of Christ. I want to guard myself and guard my heart and guard my life. But at the end of the day, our confidence ought to rest in Christ and in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3, Paul says this, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance. Paul says this is the important thing. What is it? That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Look at that. Paul saying the death, the burial, and the resurrection is of first most importance. It sounds like he might have attended Key Life Fellowship at one point in time. When we talk about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ every week, no, that's not the case. We actually take that from him, which he received from the Holy Spirit. Why? Because it shows that his confidence was in the gospel, the person of the gospel and the power of the gospel. It is the power of the gospel that transforms, changes lives. It is the contents of the message, not the character or the lack thereof, of the messenger that reconciles sinners to God. So you may have been saved under a pastor who defunct from the faith and turned to homosexuality or turned to atheism, living a worldly lifestyle. Don't doubt your salvation because of that. It is the message of the gospel that matters. It is the message of the gospel that points to Christ, and it is in Christ who points us to the Father. 
And it is his redemptive plan, the redemptive plan of the Father, that has allowed us to believe, not the nature of a messenger, even if that messenger is just a wolf in sheep's clothing. What care the Lord takes here? A seemingly strange verse to remove their fears that the gospel would be invalidated. Can I say this to you today? In a day and time where many people are turning away from the gospel, listen to me. It does not invalidate the gospel. Oh, people will say, that's old-fashioned. You really believe that book? There's things in that book 4,000 years old. Man, get up to speed. The gospel message is not going to be invalidated. It is true. It will be forever true. It will be true for all eternity. It is the only message, the only message for sinful man that turns their wicked heart to a holy God and makes them right with him through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that was made on a cross 2,000 years ago. It is only in the gospel that we find reconciliation with our Creator. So let's wrap this up. As we conclude, I want to give you this. You shouldn't be shaken by those who betray and walk out on Christ. You shouldn't be shaken. I know this is a somewhat gloomy message, but it's a reality. There are those who defect from our midst. They go out from us because they are not of us. Don't lose heart. Rest in the assurance of Jesus Christ. Know that he is sovereignly in control of all things. He knows those who are his. He knows those who are not his. And he knows that about you today. Just as he was there in that upper room at Passover, and he had known the whole time that there was a traitor, an unbeliever, a pretender. He knows that about some of you this morning. Oh, if you are that pretender, oh, you go to church because you want people to think this and that of you. You're not really concerned about surrendering your life to Christ. So you continue to pretend week after week after week, never truly surrendering to Christ. He knows. It's not shocking to him right now. Well, my prayer for you is this, that he would graciously allow you to repent of your unbelief today. That you realize as he opens your eyes to the fact that you're not going to fool him. You can fool everyone in this room. One day you will stand before him and you will stand before his judgment throne and you will not fool God. Perhaps today you're that traitor, just as I once was. I traded the things of God for the things of my flesh, just as Judas did. Oh, I'm thankful that God in His grace allowed me to repent, gave me the time to repent and the patience with me to repent and the compassion that moved me to repentance. But Judas didn't get that luxury. And I can't promise it to you. But perhaps you're here today and you know, you know, that all reality says you would sell Jesus out for something else. I pray today that God changes your heart, that you repent of your sinful, unbelieving heart, you turn to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You have seen him week after week after week do great things. Don't be like Judas who sees him do great things and continues on a path of betrayal. But today, turn to Christ, repenting of your sin, believing and trusting in him and him alone as Lord and Savior, and be saved and forgiven of all your sin forevermore. Let's pray together. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come to you. We thank you for your word. 
Lord, we thank you that your word is powerful, mightier than a double-edged sword. Lord, that it is able to cut through all of the distractions, cut through of all, all of the delusions that the enemy has created, and to cut to our heart. God, I pray today that you would cut to someone's heart today, and you would show them their need for Christ, that you would show them their condition, condemned as a sinner, and in need of mercy and grace, and that they would cry out to you today to save them, to wash them, to cleanse them, and to grant to them eternal life as only you have promised. God, we thank you for who you are, for what you continue to do. May you be glorified in all things. Draw sinners to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Key Life Fellowship Pulpit Ministry Podcast. If you would like to talk with one of our pastors, please email us at info at keylifefellowship.org or call us at 281-689-1604. You can also visit our website at www.keylifefellowship.com. We hope and pray you have a blessed week. And remember, you are light in the darkness. Thank you.